Time for our second Bible reading, and it's taken from the book of Galatians, chapter 1 and verses 1 to 10. Paul, an apostle, sent not from men nor by man, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers with me, to the church in Galatia. Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who called you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is really no gospel at all. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. As we have already said, so now I say again, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I were still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. Amen. Good morning, church. A warm welcome to all of you and a special welcome to those of you who are here for the very first time and visiting us. Uh, You've come on a, a day where we are beginning a new series together on the book of Galatians. And we will be studying this book in quite detail, and it will take us to the end of Term 3. And so on the way in, you would have received one of these outlines, these, uh, the newsletter. On the inside, there's an outline, so you might find that helpful in taking notes, in just following along in case, you know, I lose my spot, I'll refer to this. And if, if you lose where I am, look at this, and hopefully it'll, it'll help along the way. Uh, but let's pray once again, and, and we'll have a look at this passage. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do speak to us. By your powerful words, you show us in the words of Scripture how we can have a relationship with you, and and that is only through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to know that more deeply. Impress that upon our hearts today as we consider this chapter. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I'd like you to imagine something with me. I'd like you to imagine if one day, on a Sunday, you rock up to church just like this, and... All the leadership are all gone, completely gone. No minister, I'm gone. Some of you might be happy, he's gone, finally. All the staff, ministry staff, all gone, nowhere to be seen. All the elders, also gone. Now it's getting a bit more serious. Who's going to lead us? Who's going to shepherd us? Who's going to teach us? No minister, no ministry staff, no elders. And then you look around and you notice... In fact, there is no growth group leaders as well. No kids' church teachers. No youth leaders. All gone. Now it's getting very serious. I mean, we can do without a minister, but we can't do without our kids' church teachers and youth leaders. Now, of course, we're just imagining. But what if that were to happen? You rock up to church, no leadership. Will the church survive? What do you think? Will the church go on? Will the church be okay? 
After a while, of course, you'll need to raise up new leaders, find new ministers, and find new teachers to teach our kids and youth. But will the church be okay if, for some reason, all the leadership completely wiped out? How do you make sure that the church will remain focused, will not lose its focus on the centrality of the gospel of Jesus Christ? How do you make sure that the church will remain committed to the truth of the gospel, this good news that comes from God, to the message of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, to what it means to be saved, to have salvation, to be completely concerned for the eternal destiny of souls? How do you make sure if the leadership's gone and that is all you have, will the church change? What do you think? Will the church over the weeks and months start to become more tolerant of the many different views out there in society? Strong views, imposing views. Will the church change in theology, change in its beliefs, in its behavior, in its practice? Or will the church continue to stay on track and all you have is the Bible? Well, you see, that was the Apostle Paul's concern as he wrote this letter to the churches in Galatia. Now, the region of Galatia in the ancient world is called Asia Minor, which is in modern-day Turkey. And these were the churches the Apostle Paul planted himself, was involved in planting, but he's left them and he's gone throughout the Mediterranean to plant other churches. And now he writes back to them. And as we consider this letter, what we find in this letter was Paul's most angry, most devastating, most disappointing letter he wrote to any of the churches. He's not happy with this church. And we can see that when we compare this letter to his other letters that he wrote. You see, in the letters that he writes, he begins with the standard formula. He begins with, by saying, who I am, to whom I'm writing to, he gives his greetings, his salutation, and then he gives his thanksgivings. That's what he will normally begin. That's how he would normally begin. But you'll notice in the book of Galatians, no thanksgiving whatsoever. We don't find the Apostle Paul thanking God for them whatsoever. He gives his greetings, and then he moves on to what was the problem. Now, that should be very telling, because when you compare this letter to his other letters, like the letter to the Corinthians, 1 and 2 Corinthians. I mean, if you think about the church in Corinth, it was a messy church. It was a broken church. It was a church where there was sexual immorality. There was a man in the church sleeping with his stepmother, and the church approved of it. It was a terrible, messy, sinful church. Wickedness was rife in the church, but yet, even to the church in Corinth... Paul was able to say, I always thank my God for you. There was something to thank God for them, even though they were so messy. But yet in this letter, we hear nothing of the sort. He was not pleased at all from the reports he heard of this church. And so will this church survive? Will the churches throughout Asia Minor survive? Will they stick to the gospel? You see, Paul's concern for them was not unique to Paul. 
because it should be and must be the concern of every single church, of every single generation, because it's very easy for churches to slip away and to lose focus. And hence my question at the beginning. If the leadership for some reason completely wiped out, do you think the church will survive? Will it stick to the gospel? And that's why Paul begins his letter. So if you have your Bibles there, if you don't, take one of the pew Bibles. We'll actually work through this scripture, this passage, verse by verse. If we have a look at this passage, Paul begins with the absolute clarity of the gospel he preaches. And he says, quite simply, there is only one gospel. It's a simple message. You cannot get this wrong. There is only one gospel. And it's the difference between finding forgiveness or missing out. It's the difference between having eternal life or facing eternal condemnation. It's the difference between being a child of God or remaining God's enemy. You see, it's a difference between heaven and hell. And so Paul begins by making clear, even as he greets the church, there is only one gospel. There is only one way to be with God. And he makes two simple points. It is the gospel that he proclaims as an apostle. And secondly, it is the gospel that is centered on Jesus Christ. And so firstly, as Paul begins, just like any ancient letter, you start by saying who you are. And that's what Paul did. And he was at pains to make clear, absolutely clear, who he was. Sometimes uh, when I call up our members in, in the church and I call up and say, Hi, this is John. And they're sometimes confused. John who? I'm thinking, I mean, who, who do you think? It's John Wynne, the, the minister from St. Stephen's. You know, the reverend? They're, they're, they're not so sure. Yvonne's husband. Then, okay. Sometimes I'm trying to make clear who I am. But of course here, Paul was trying to make clear who he was, but the office he held. Paul was making clear, I am the apostle. Look at verse 1. Paul, an apostle. The word apostle just means the one who is sent. An apostle sent not from men, nor by men, but by Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead. Which means, Paul is saying, I'm the one who has words to say to you that are words that do not belong to me. Nor are they words from any man, nor of any human authority or counsel. But these are the words that carry the authority of Jesus Christ himself. I'm an apostle sent by him. You see, the office of the apostle was reserved to only the twelve plus the apostle Paul because only they were commissioned by Jesus Christ himself. There were many disciples, were disciples, but only some were those unique capital A apostles. And so Paul's trying to make clear, whatever you believe about the gospel, it cannot be different to what I taught you as the apostle. And so the gospel is proclaimed by the apostle and it is centered on Jesus Christ, which means the gospel is centered on a person. It's not centered on a set of rules. It's not centered on philosophy. It's not centered on morality or human intelligence. It's centered on a person. And we see it in his greetings. You see, Paul here again at pains, even in his greetings, to make clear the gospel. 
It's no, no, no other gospel. There's only the one gospel. And what we find here is that his greeting is a bit longer than what he would normally say in his other letters. Normally he would say grace and peace to you from God, which is itself a summary of the gospel. His greeting, grace and peace, two words, embraces the whole of Christianity. In fact, Martin Luther, the reformer, he puts it this way. Two words, grace forgives sin and peace stills the conscience. Just two words, embraces the whole of Christianity. But in this letter, he expands on it because he was aware this church, they were getting it so wrong and their eternal destiny was at stake. And so we read verses 3 to 5 now. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the whole of Christianity embraced. But now he expands on it, verse 4. Who gave himself for our sins to rescue us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul, what he did there was he summarized the gospel. Now, if you were to summarize the gospel in a sentence, what would you say? Just have a think about that. What would you say in one sentence? Well, that was Paul's summary. For Paul, it is about Jesus who came on a rescue mission. As simple as that. And if Jesus is the rescuer, it means that I cannot rescue myself. That's the crux of the gospel. Christianity is a rescue religion. It's not a law religion. Often people will say, you Christians, you're all about rules and laws. You're so uptight and quaint and just traditional. You're you're just all about law. Not at all. Christianity is first and foremost a rescue religion, the rescue of Jesus Christ. You see, the gospel is about what Jesus has done for us, not what we do to be rescued. It is all Jesus and none of us. It's just like, you know, the person drowning. The person drowning at sea is completely dependent upon the rescuer for, for, to be safe. Or the man inside a burning building, completely dependent upon the rescuer, cannot save himself. And so Paul makes clear here, he gave himself for our sins, we read, to rescue us from this present evil age. Now, what did he mean? Well, for Jesus to give himself for our sins means that Jesus comes to stand and to stand in our place. It's what theologians call substitution. There's a swap that takes place. He stands in our place, he gets what we deserve, and we get what he deserves. And of course, that is there talking about the cross of Christ. He faced death so that we can get life. A bit like a rescuer who rescues the man drowning but drowns himself to save the drowning man. Or the rescuer to save the man inside a burning building but he's burnt himself to save the burning man. There's a swap. He came and died for our sins. And then we read, it's a rescue from this present evil age. Now the Bible describes the whole of human history As this present evil age. And that is because since the beginning, since Adam and Eve fell from grace, this world has been stained and tainted and marred by sin, by wickedness and by evil. 
And we see that. We just have to open our eyes, read the news, and we can see the wickedness of humanity. Two months ago, I went along to a prayer breakfast at PLC at the school, and we heard of this mission work called Destiny Rescue. Now, this, this organization, their aim, their mission, was to save children out of sexual exploitation and slavery in many parts of the poorer places in the world. That was the mission of the organization, children trapped in such a life, and their mission was to save such children. Now, when I was there listening to that, it was just gut-wrenching. Because why would you ever need such an organization to exist? But it shows the present evil age in which we live. It is a broken and messy world. And if we ever forget that we do live in a wicked and broken world, just remember the Holocaust. You don't have to live that long to see that this world is broken. Evil is out there, but it's also in here. You see, the evil we see around the world is the evil that cuts across every heart of humanity. And so when Paul speaks about being rescued from this present evil age, he's saying the rescue is so that we can be brought out of this kingdom into the kingdom of Jesus Christ. It's like our memory verse in Colossians. is to be rescued to the kingdom of God. He rescued us so that we might belong to the kingdom to come. Not this present age, but the age to come, where there is perfect joy and peace and love. And deep down, that is what we all long for. And so why did this rescue take place? Why this gospel in the first place? It is because we read, it is according to the will of God. It's God's plan, God's purpose. God designed it. The gospel is God's idea. It's not ours. God's activity, not ours. And that is why Paul ends his greeting, all glory belongs to God, to whom all glory be glory forever and ever. Amen. And so Paul begins, first five verses, he makes it clear. There is only one gospel. Let's be clear about that. Only one gospel, only one way to be with God, only one way to be saved. Which means there is no other gospel. There is no other way to be rescued. And what Paul says here may sound very controversial. But the Apostle Paul did not tolerate any other views. There are many views around the world, many worldviews. But Paul is saying there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. Which means you cannot find salvation by meditation. You cannot find salvation by doing yoga. Which means you cannot find salvation by going to Buddha or Muhammad or the ancestors or Krishna. No one else. There is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. There is no other gospel. And that's why Paul, he was so deadly serious in this letter. He got straight to the point. He didn't spend time giving thanks or chit-chat. You know how sometimes when we call someone and we have something to ask them. But we don't get straight to the question because, you know, it's not so important. We, we spend some time, chit-chat, catch, catch up on life, what's happening. But sometimes when there is something very important where we need to get straight to the point, it's an emergency. 
We, we have no time for chit-chat. In fact, the other day I received such a call. It's not good news, John. It's not good news. He's not doing well. Ambulance has come. He's in the hospital. Sometimes it's that important that you don't have time for all the chit-chat. Well, it's a bit like that for Paul here in this letter. No time for thanksgiving, no chit-chat, but instead he gets straight to the point. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, I am astonished. I am astonished. It's a word that carries a tone of rebuke and astonishment. I am astonished that you are so quickly deserting the one who caught you by the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel, which is no gospel at all. And so in just a short time after Paul left the churches there, we don't exactly know how long, but they have so quickly deserted the gospel. The leadership gone, but they have started to drift. But do you notice from what? They turned away not from some theological idea, not some body of knowledge. They turned away from a person. They turned away from God himself. And that was no small matter. No wonder why the Apostle Paul was so astonished. I mean, why would you turn away from the one who rescued you? Just like the one drowning or the man inside a burning house. Why would you run away from the rescuer? It just didn't make sense. And so Paul was not pleased at all. And already here, I think there's a, there, there is there a lesson for us as a church. If we find that we stop talking about God, if we stop fixing our eyes on Jesus, if we stop depending on his spirit, and instead we talk about pop psychology, what we hear from the pulpit is what makes us happy, and we think about what the experts think, and we talk about that, well, that's when we've gone off track. Something is very wrong. And so here, they're turning away from the God who has caught them by grace in Jesus Christ. They're turning away from the God who has opened up his arms and lavished his love upon them in Jesus Christ. The God who has so graciously forgiven them. The God who has caught them to belong to him. You are mine. You are my sons and daughters. And they're turning away from him. Now we might find that hard to believe. Why would they do such a thing? Why would that church be so easily confused? Why would anyone do that? But we do see it. We do see it even in churches today. How many of us would think this way or would see this? How many of us went to Sunday school years ago or decades ago? And when we were in Sunday school, we had plenty of friends. But now, years later, decades later, as we re recall and as we reflect, not many of them attend church anymore. It happens, doesn't it? Or how many of us have led youth group in the past with other youth leaders, but now looking back and looking around, some of those youth leaders no longer trust in Jesus. We see that, don't we? Or how many of you remember praying with brothers and sisters who did express faith, but are now all caught up with the pleasures of this world? I mean, that is deserting from God, turning from him to something else. 
And, and if you live long enough in Australia, you will have seen the big change in our society on a big scale over the last few decades, turning from God to really anything else. This past week, one of our elders at church sent me an article about the recent release of the census data, and it's quite fascinating to read. The, the title of the article was Abandoning God, Christianity Plummets as Non-Religious Surges in Census. As the, and the statistics were very clear. We, we read in this article, Australia has become strikingly more godless over the past decade. When the first census was conducted in 1911, 96% of Australians listed a form of Christianity as their religion. Data from the 2021 census shows that just 44% of Australians now identify as Christian, whereas 39% of Australians now identify as non-religious. There's a huge shift even in our country. And of course, that could be for many, many reasons. No less immigration patterns over the last few decades. But it is also a reflection that we've moved away from you know, traditional values, but more broadly, a country that was built on the Judeo-Christian heritage is no longer that. We can't call that anymore. It's a reflection of a society turning from God to anything else, finding hope and fulfillment and satisfaction in pleasures, in, in self-fulfillment, in stuff, instead of the God who made all the stuff. But of course, in this letter, Paul's concern was not so much that the society turning away from God. His concern was that the church itself was turning away from God. What was taking place was within the church. They were in the church, but yet they were deserting from God. Why? Well, he goes on to explain. Well, there were those within the church, infiltrated the church, who were perverting the gospel. Troublemakers, agitators, perverters, mucking around with the gospel of Jesus. You see, the gospel of Jesus is so pure. You add anything to it, it means you've taken away from it. You take away from it and you're left with nothing. You cannot tamper with what Jesus has done. In his death and resurrection, you tamper with it. You tamper with the person and work of Jesus Christ. You muck it all up. You cannot touch it. And so verse 7, that's what Paul says. Evidently, some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ. To pervert the gospel is to butcher the gospel, to reverse it, to completely change it. And the word that's used here is the same word that's used when laughter's changed to grief or the sun into darkness. It is to reverse it. They've reversed the gospel. Now, I wonder whether some of us might be thinking now, well, I don't think we're so gullible. We won't be so easily confused. I mean, we're educated people. We've got brains. But here's a test. And consider these tests. I wonder whether any one of us would think any of this. I think I'm a Christian because my parents are and I was baptized. Or I'm sure I'll be in heaven one day because I've been attending church my whole life. I've done a lot of good in my life. I'm a decent person. Or 
I'm sure God will accept me because I'm a spiritual person. I'm close to God. Or, I know I'm saved because I serve the Lord even on the mission field. I wonder if any one of us would think any of those points, would think in any of those ways. Because if we do, that's not the gospel. That's in fact not the gospel. That is in fact to desert God. You see, the gospel, if there is any I in the gospel, if there's any I think, I served, I did, I was, that is not the gospel. There is no I in the gospel whatsoever. If you add an I in it, it's a perversion of the gospel. The gospel is simply about what Jesus has done and nothing about us at all. It's subtle, isn't it? It's why the churches in Galatia were so easily thrown into confusion. And that's what Paul goes on to. He did not hold back on how serious it was for this church. Even if angels were to proclaim another gospel, they would face the divine wrath of God. Look at verse 8. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let him be eternally condemned. Or literally, let him be anathema. Angels who would dare to proclaim another gospel will face the divine judgment of God. There's this wonderful story of Charles Spurgeon, that that great Baptist preacher from the 1800s, a great preacher. There was this illustration he gave once about an angel who appeared from here to him from God with a message for him. And when the angel appeared, he didn't want to hear it. But the angel insisted, and the message was this, Mr. Spurgeon, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now just imagine that for a moment. If an angel were to appear to you and to say to you, Mr. So-and-so, your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, how would you feel? Perhaps many of us will be quite excited. I've been singled out by God. I've got a vision of an angel. God cares for me. It will be quite thrilled. But what did Spurgeon say? He said this. He said, You wicked, wicked angel. You are tempting me to put my trust in the word of a mere angel rather than in the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for me. You see, an angel who directs our trust away from Jesus will be condemned. And so will any other person. And that's what we see in verse 9. Have a look at verse 9 now. As we have already said, so now I say again. And what we perhaps lose in the English translation here is that in the Greek, it's trying to draw our attention, our focus to this verb. Paul is saying, what I'm saying now, I'm saying again, this is important, make sure you listen to this. If anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let him be eternally condemned. You see, the Apostle Paul does not hold back any swings here. He uses very strong language because he knows what is at stake for this church and because he knows whom it is he ultimately serves. He's there to teach 
and to preach and to care and to pastor, not ultimately to please them, but to please God. And that's, in fact, quite an important thing to keep in mind in life and in ministry for myself. I mean, as I considered that verse this week, it is so true. If in ministry I was so concerned about what everyone thought about me, what everyone said about me, that would be so crippling, so paralyzing. I mean, should I say the truth? Should I speak it? Would it offend? Should I just tolerate it because that's more likable? But if ultimately I'm worried about what other people think of me, then it will be very hard to call out sin. It will be very hard to rebuke when necessary because it will be offensive. It will be intolerant. But that's why Paul says here, so important to remember, I'm here not to please men, but God. I have the audience of one. And so in verse 10, the Apostle Paul says, Am I now trying to win the approval of men or of God? Or am I trying to please men? If I'm still trying to please men, I would not be a servant of Christ. But Paul says, because I'm a servant of Christ, I'm game enough to say I am astonished. I'm so astonished with you bunch that you are so quickly turning away to another gospel. And so Paul's point here in the opening chapter, hard to hear, but simple. There's only one gospel and there's no other. That's the point he's making. Now at the beginning I did ask you, if for some reason the leadership completely wiped down, will the church survive? What do you think? Well, of course, God in his sovereignty, he'll care for his own. He'll protect his own. But let's just say after some time, the elders, they hear about how St. Stephen's are going and they write a letter back to St. Stephen's. What do you think they'll say? What type of letter would they write? Would it be an angry letter like the Apostle Paul's or would it be one filled with so much encouragement? How can the church make sure that this church family remains utterly committed to the gospel, unswervingly dependent upon Jesus, unwilling to tolerate any other gospel which is no gospel at all? You see, even if there are no leaders, no elders whatsoever, you know what the church still has? What the church still has is most precious of all, and that is the Bible. And that is enough. If you have the Bible, you just stick to that. So simple, isn't it? If you have the Bible, you just stick to that. You stick to the teachings of the apostles, and that is enough. You listen to the voice of the apostles, in fact, the voice of God, above any human voice, above any bishop or pope or minister, even me. You listen to the word of God. And that's why it's practiced in our church. Every week we encourage, keep your Bibles open as you listen. Because you want to see what is said aligns with what God says. We always encourage, keep the Bibles open. And perhaps that's good practice for our church. If you've got a Bible, bring it along. You know, modern day people, we like to use phones. And I reckon bring the Bible. Annotate it, mark in it, use it. If you don't have one, let me know. We'll get you one. But what we want to see taught always is under the authority of Scripture. We listen with the Bibles open. And what you find in the Bible, what you find is the beauty, the glory, and the simplicity of the gospel. 
you see, so wonderful, so costly, so marvelous, the good news of God, but yet so simple. Why is it simple? My salvation has nothing to do with I. Nothing at all. If you have an I in your gospel, you've got a wrong gospel, which is no gospel at all. The gospel is so simple. It has nothing to do with I, but everything to do with Christ alone, by faith alone, by grace alone. And so today that question is for the church. You know, we're imagining But perhaps more personally, it's a question for each one of you individually. And especially if you are new to the church and exploring Christianity. How sure are you, each one of you, for you to reflect in your own hearts? I mean, we we can't really see. In fact, only God can see what's in your heart. But how sure are you of your own eternal destiny? Do you know the gospel and have you grasped hold of it? Are you absolutely certain? Are you certain? I mean, there's no fooling anyone. It's between you and God. This past week, as I reflected on this passage, it was quite profound just to get an experience of the power of the gospel and the importance of the gospel, the power and also the simplicity of the gospel. I mean, as a, as a minister, I've been to Bible college, spent years studying the Bible, looked at the original language, translated. You have to do so much work, read commentaries, read theological books, and there's more to learn. But reflecting on this passage, you see that the gospel actually, the crux of it, is so simple. And it is the same simple gospel for the youngest of us to the oldest of us. And I got these two experiences this week. It was wonderful. At the beginning of this week, we've heard about the holiday club. Our wonderful teachers and helpers, what did they do? Well, they taught the gospel, the same simple gospel to children as young as five in prep. And in one of the classes I heard of, I spoke to one of the helpers, and she was so encouraged. She said the best part of Holiday Club were the sessions, were the teaching time. And what they taught, they thought, well, Jesus died for you, so you can go to heaven, so that you can have eternal life. And in that little class... From prep to year twos. The kids were so excited. So many of those kids heard it for the very first time. And they said, I believe in Jesus. And I believe in Jesus. And one by one, they said, I believe in Jesus. As simple as that. Now, of course, we don't know what is happening inside their hearts. God knows. But that is the simplicity of the gospel that even children can take hold of and grasp onto. That was at the beginning of this week. At the end of this week, I found myself meeting someone at the other end of life, from the youngest to the oldest. It was by his hospital bed, one of our members. Same gospel we reflected on. Same gospel we reflected on and spoke about. And that day was touch and go for this man. But the opportunity there to be reminded of the glory, but yet the simplicity of the gospel... And I said to this man, your future is brighter because of the gospel of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is your saviour, there is glory to come. And him on his bed with sincerity, with a, a softness in his face, a man who has been walking with the Lord for many years, he said, Jesus is my saviour. 
from the youngest to the oldest, that same gospel, we can be absolutely sure that heaven is ours, there is glory to come, and the future is brighter. You see, that was what Paul was concerned about then. It's still the same concern today because we can be so easily drifted and confused. But Jesus is the Savior. I mean, we'll sing surely, In Christ alone my hope is found. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. He in the power of Christ I stand. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that in your kindness and mercy and by your will, the Lord Jesus did come to be our rescuer. We thank you, Lord, that our salvation depends not on I at all, but solely on Christ alone. And we thank you with the, from the depths of our hearts how wonderful, how glorious, how powerful, yet how simple this gospel is. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.